I mentioned earlier what an incredible message that we're going to hear from God's Word this morning. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, as Pastor Paul shows us the contrast between the heart of the Pharisee and the heart of a tax collector. So hear the Word of the Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word for God's people. Will you say thanks be to God? Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. Good morning to you, Christ Church family and guests. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My name is Paul Lawler. I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at Christ Church. I want to take a moment and share a personal word before we preach. And so this is a pastor's heart. I grieve with you. I grieve with you as a church family. I grieve with our city, with the tragedy of the plane crash that took place this past week. And we are praying for our sisters and brothers at Harvest Church, which is a gospel-centered, disciple-making, church-planting church. We breathe the same spiritual air. And I am mindful that their senior pastor was, in a sense, birthed out of Christ Church. Only Jesus births a person into the kingdom, but I am aware that Kenan was nurtured here and he grew in the Lord here as he served as a student pastor before planting Harvest Church. And I would want our church family to know that this week, not only have I and we been praying for all of you as we grieve, but we called, I called Harvest Church and spoke with their staff and conveyed to them that we as the Christ Church family are grieving with them, praying for them, and standing with them in this hour. So would you pray with me for just a moment? So God, I'm asking that you do a miracle. Lord, do the miracle of your living word piercing our heart with surgical precision that as you intended it to work healing through the gift of the gospel of Jesus in every life in the sanctuary and those that are listening online oh God kingdom come we pray will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven in Jesus name amen so it's always wise to ask the question, Jesus, why are you saying what you're saying? And so Jesus shares this parable, and, but he tells us on the front end why he's sharing it. He says, I'm sharing it because there are persons who trust in themselves 
and treat others with contempt, and this not only fails to put them in right relationship with God, but it hinders, it actually shuts down the effectiveness of their prayer life. Because we see in verse 10 that there are two people, two men that are going up to the temple to intercede. Apparently both of them recognize that there are things on this earth that are not good. They're not aligned with the heart of God. So two men go to the temple to pray and the scripture tells us, Jesus tells us that one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. Now let's pause for just a moment and affirm that a Pharisee would be a person who has memorized vast amounts of scripture. They would, to the degree that they would probably embarrass most of us, they would embarrass me. But they knew vast amounts of the Torah. They had it committed to memory. And, and, and they, they knew the law. They knew it well. And, and so we're aware that the Pharisees were very religious. And that's why I've used this term that we're going to talk about for a moment, that there's some vulnerability that goes with that. There's a vulnerability that goes with being outwardly religious because what we see in the life of the Pharisee, just in the parable alone, let alone the entire New Testament, is that Pharisees often are not full of what we would call life-giving righteousness, but they're religious. And, and we're aware of, as we read this parable that the Pharisee in the parable he, he had the form of being religious, but without the manifestation of the love of God. In fact, what we might say is without the manifestation of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, we could go on. He, he had the outward, but didn't have the inward. He had the what, but he doesn't seem to have the who. And there's, we see in light of reading the parable that he, that he has a blind spot, huge blind spot. It's, it's a vulnerability, and, and I would characterize it this way. The Pharisee, he lives in an illusion. You say, why do you say that? Well, he thinks he's not like everybody else. And, and how do we know that? We know that because he says it. In fact, it's even worse. He prays it. He says this, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, we're going to circle back to that for a moment, but what I want to invite you also to consider in this moment is this. Notice what he doesn't say. Notice that he says nothing about his own sins. And, and then contrast that with what the scripture says about us all about me, about you, about all of us. He who says he is without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Or Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We, there's good news at the end of that verse, but right now for the sake of emphasis, just look at the first portion. So the Pharisee either thinks his sin falls into some type of category where he gets a pass or the Pharisee has a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is this. He only has a revelation of himself. He does not have a revelation of God. Now, I'm going to refer to Isaiah chapter 6 twice today. Here's the first time. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's a man named Isaiah that's suddenly in the presence of God. 
And in the presence of God, many of you know that in that chapter that he's in a scene in heaven with cherubim, seraphim around the throne of God and they are repeating out of the Hebrew, holy, holy, holy. And this is repeated around the throne as they exalt and praise and worship God. And I want you to note what they don't say. They're not around the throne of God going loving, loving, loving. Now, Pastor Paul, are you insinuating that God is not loving? No, just the opposite. Scripture teaches that he's loving. God so loved the world. God is love, as John writes in 1 John. We can make and do want to make much of that. But just note that in fully in the presence of God, that this is not the quality or the portion or facet of the character of God that is affecting every angelic being as well as Isaiah as he's in the presence of God. Nor are the angelic beings declaring merciful, merciful, merciful. And while we want to make much of God's mercy and as is highlighted in this parable, let us take note that what the angelic realm as they praise the creator of the heavens and the earth and what Isaiah is conscious of is the complete otherness of God, which is one of the definitions of the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. And what we see in Isaiah 6 is the understanding of Isaiah when he's in the presence of God Almighty. He then says, oh, woe is me. I am undone in light of my own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people. And you may remember that the angel, one of the angels brings a coal to his lips, which is a symbol, a, new, a symbol, if you will, of the cross of Christ Jesus. We'll preach that another time. But the picture of the Pharisee here is that he fails to see the nature of God. He fails to see the holiness of God. And because he fails to see the nature and holiness of God, he fails to come to grips with his own sinfulness. Loved ones, the Pharisee doesn't need a savior because he is his own savior. And because he is his own savior, ultimately he does not have a savior. He only has himself. And that is the core, uh, the core of the illusion that he is under. And the illusion sets him up for a thousand deceptions. Rooted in the illusion of his self-righteousness. Look at what he does. The Pharisee is so self-righteous that not only does he not name any sin, no confession of any sin as he's in the presence of the Holy One as he goes to the temple, but he even lifts up he has the audacity to lift up his own self, his self-righteousness as he's praying before God in the temple. You see that in verse, eight, uh, verse 12 where he says in prayer, oh, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I tithe all I get. Huh. Do you realize, loved ones, 
that while fasting has its place in the Christian life, New Testament and Old Testament have examples and instructions and, and there are benefits to wedding prayer and fasting. Let's not minimize that. But when at the outward becomes the, the mark of what is righteous in the heart, when it's based on performance and, and lifting up our righteousness before the one who is holy and full of glory and majesty. Focus is not on us. The focus is on him. I mean, Bible does teach patterns of tithing, but we can do it for the wrong reasons. If it's coming out of, the, of a heart of adoring the Lord and enjoying blessings in God, amen, that's, that's beautiful when it's God-centered, but when it's centered in a way that it's our righteousness, we recognize that Jesus is indicting that kind of mindset. And so we recognize that he has the outward works but lacks the inner experience of God himself and Christ. And the illusion that he is under fuels his comparison of himself with others. He thinks, based upon the story Jesus tells, he thinks the standard is how he measures up with other people. Do you see that? Verse 11, God, I thank you. And this is prayer. He's praying this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And then he takes it to a completely new level. He starts naming the sins of other people. Do you see that? He has, he's putting everybody else under a microscope and himself under a telescope. And he names the sins of other people. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector, as he says in verse 11. Tax collectors had a reputation of being extortioners. And church family, this is a tragedy. Aware of the sins of others, pointing them out, feeling superior, no consciousness of one's own sins. Loved ones, that's a lose-lose proposition. The moment you begin comparing yourselves to others, one of two things are going to happen. If that's your barometer, because you're, if you begin comparing yourself to other people, you're going to feel superior and that's pride or you're going to feel inferior and that's pride because you're made in the image of God. You, you are worth much. You are a person, a human being, mind, soul, body. You are valuable and, and yet when you compare yourself to others, if, you're, if you feel inferior, it is based upon pride because you're putting self on the throne in light of your own being being the standard. And so it's a lose-lose proposition. I just lovingly remind you, God, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when Isaiah is in the presence of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, he doesn't say, woe is me, I don't compare well with others. No, he says, woe is me, I'm undone in light of the glory and majesty and holiness of Almighty God. And so rather than justifying sin or comparing ourselves with others, let us come before God in humility, which leads us to the tax collector. The justification of the tax collector. 
Notice how he demonstrates. Notice the difference. Notice how he's in the presence of God. Notice he demonstrates sorrow over his sin. Do you see this? Look with me, verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He's taking a posture of humility. He's a He's taking a posture of reverence before God. He's taking a posture that's Godward. And then the scripture says, but, but he, in the presence of God, as he's going to pray, he beat his breast. Now that's not a phrase we use very often in our culture, but in Jesus' culture in that day, this phrase had specific meaning. In fact, you see it occasionally in the Old Testament as well. To beat one's breast meant it was an expression of sorrow or woe, an expression of grief, disappointment. In other words, what he's expressing is a personal sorrow over his sin. It is a God word, God-centered, Christ-manifested sorrow over what sin has done in his damage and his uh, hindering relationship with God. Now, just imagine for a moment. Imagine if Bill Gates were to adopt a child. Think about this. The implications would be staggering, right? Jeff Benzos, he adopts a child. Implications, staggering. President of the United States, he adopts a child. The implications would be staggering. Well, you've come to Christ if you've put your faith in the person of Jesus and you have become his child. The implications are staggering. They're infinite. And while we don't have time today to go through all the infinite implications, loved ones, let's just lift up a few related to the tax collector and think with me for a moment. Think about the writer of Hebrews when he's declaring to a child of God that God has more invested in you than you. And he does this in the following way. He says, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? Note that. If you, if you have a Bible open, some of you do. I see some of you taking notes. I would circle the phrase word of encouragement so that you understand the heart of God behind what's emerging here. Note this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father would address his son or daughter. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And the picture is in the investment of, that God has placed in your life, my life. There are times where there is a God-centered sorrow over our sin. And it's a result of the movement of the grace of God in our own lives that's tuning us into alignment with the love of God as he purifies our hearts. The Apostle Paul, as you know, wrote the majority of the New Testament. He wrote a, a difficult letter once, real difficult letter. It was a letter called 1 Corinthians. There were all kinds of problems at Corinth. We don't have time to list them all. A lot of brokenness, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of things that were not in appropriate boundaries. And one of those things was in the church, the church all knew about a sinful behavior of a certain person within the church family, and they kept sweeping it under the rug. And they, they just didn't deal with it. They kind of, this man in the church, and then before I say this, I want you to know I don't like saying things like this, but the Bible doesn't sugarcoat expressions of the brokenness of humanity. And so, 
in the brokenness of humanity, there's a man who's sleeping with his, his stepmother. And it's causing all kinds of pain. It's brought reproach on the name of Christ. They're grieving the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the church won't lovingly confront that they're enabling and it's grieving God's spirit. And so Paul writes them a difficult letter and in chapter five, he instructs the church, he says, listen, you need to, because this man's not repentant, you need to remove him from your midst and you need to allow for a season where the enemy would buffet him and the motive is love, I'm paraphrasing Paul's words, where the enemy would buffet him so that as he experiences discipline under the sovereignty of God, that he'll turn back to God and be restored in Christ. The, the motive is not punishment. The motive, motive is love. The motive is to bring the man home to Christ and so that the church will know joy in Christ and, and, and be also delivered from patterns of grieving the Holy Spirit. And so the church follows this. It was hard. The church followed the Apostle Paul's instruction. And then Paul writes a second letter. We don't know if it was a year later or 24 months later. The Bible doesn't tell us that specifically. But he writes a second letter after the man's been restored and Paul's rejoicing with them because the man has, and the church has experienced what we would call the grace. The grace of God. The grace of a godly sorrow. The grace of God working in the church. The grace of God working in this man's life that actually produces Christ's likeness. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 7 when he writes, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. In other words, it's rooted in turning to Christ. It's rooted in being restored to Christ. And it leaves no regret because it's pure. It does a pure work where our heart is transformed. Worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is like regret. Oh gee, I got caught. Or oh gee, I'm exposed. But when God does a work, it brings this fruitfulness that is a fruitfulness of relief and joy and peace in, the, in God and in the Holy Spirit. Loved ones, that's what the tax collector is expressing. He's beating his breast, which is a symbol, a representation of a godly sorrow in the presence of God. He demonstrates sorrow over his sin. Secondly, he expresses his need for God's mercy. Look with me, verse 13. God, be merciful to be a sinner. Now, I want to remind you, God is merciful. The Bible says there's a new mercy from God available to us every day. I want to remind you, mercy is when we do not get what we deserve. I jokingly, but with serious overtones, said to you weeks ago, you never, don't pray, God, God, I just want what I deserve. Don't pray that. Don't pray that, sister. Don't pray that, brother. He's merciful. And we see as he expresses this cry of mercy, we see blaringly these essential contrasts that Jesus wants his people to see. I hear that bell, God bless you, let's keep rolling. One, one person makes a claim to righteousness based on his own righteousness, while the other cries for the Lord's mercy because he sees 
the Lord's righteousness. One is religious, but has a revelation that teaches him to rely on himself, while the other has a revelation that teaches him to cry out in need to God, which is why when Jesus shared the most prolific sermon in the New Testament called the Sermon on the Mount, it opens with the phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. And the picture, loved ones, is that when a man or woman recognizes I have a poverty within my own spirit, I need God, that is the beginning point of knowing God. And so one has a revelation that teaches him to cry out in need of God. The other one is content with the illusion of where he is, while the other is desperate because there is no illusion as to where he is. And notice what Jesus says. I tell you, the man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Church, some of you are note takers, not everybody, but I see some of you. I would encourage you in the margin of your Bible or on your note sheet to write these words. When, when I see the word justified, I need to pay attention. That is a powerful word. The word justified means to declare righteous, to be made right with God. Justification is an act of God whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. These two men went to the temple to pray and Jesus is saying, one man, his prayers aren't being heard, but the other man, his prayers are being heard. He's justified, he's made right with God. I have my ears turned toward this person. Eldon Ladd, the theologian said, the root idea of justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, that the person who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is righteous, is viewed as being righteous because in Christ, he has come into a righteous relationship with God. My loved ones, there are many reasons why that should not be foreign to us. And I'm mindful in a crowd this size, there are many of you who you read your Bibles regularly and you see the word justification showing up, not only in Jesus' words, but Paul's words and in other places in the New Testament. But I also would submit to you, this shows up profoundly in our hymnology these words, I'm sure, are going to be familiar to most of you. They go like this. And I don't need to sing or we will end early. Here we go. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or that first verse, my hope is built on nothing less, hear this, Jesus' blood and righteousness. I would remind you, I still, when I'm on airplanes, I'm not, I'm a, this doesn't sound very pastoral. This will disappoint some of you. When I'm on an airplane, I'm not a good evangelist. I'm, I, I'm not one of those that I have stories of people coming to Christ, sitting in seats next to me. I'm not very good at that. But every now and then, people open up. And when I tell them I'm a pastor, it typically completely shuts the conversation down and they don't want to talk. Or they get nervous and become chatterboxes. And sometimes God shows up. And when those conversations happen, I, I'm still astounded at the number of people who say they're in church every Sunday. And they say, I say, well, tell me a little bit about how, how, why is God going to let you into heaven? And I hear, because I'm a good person. Loved one, that was the sin of the Pharisees.
my hope is built on nothing, nothing less than Jesus' blood, his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Or the fourth verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And one day when you and I stand at that throne to be judged, the answer we do not want to give when we give an account of our lives, I was a good person. The answer we want to give, look at him. My faith is in him. What he did on that cross for me, for us, dressed in his righteousness alone. Oh God, break through all illusions in our hearts. Oh God, grant us collectively, individually, you, me, grant us appropriate places of the grace of a godly sorrow so that we too are like the tax collector, not the Pharisee. God, grant us the riches of your mercies that are new today that result in our justification and fuels our prayer life for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads and let's pray for a moment. So, Father, we just said it, but now we pray it. Lord, we pray do what you and you alone can do. Break through our illusions. Some of our illusions are in our thinking. Some of our illusions are down in our heart. They're at the seat of our will. And we pray, oh God, do the miracle of breaking through our illusions. And Lord, may your grace, the scripture says, you're able to make it abound toward us. We pray that your grace abound toward us. And where it's appropriate, yes, the grace of a godly sorrow that produces life-giving, joyful fruit. Lord, let the riches of your mercy reign over us. And Lord, as we know justification in the person of Jesus, oh God, teach us to pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.